Good morning. Good Good to be with you here today. Now as I look at uh, the announcement I made uh, of retiring, calling for a Bishop Coadjutor, I realize that as I make these visitations, I only have one more after this here with you at Prince George. And so these things become a bit more precious to me as I reflect upon uh, the future. But please, will you join me in prayer? Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come as the wind and cleanse. Come as the fire and burn. Come as the living water and quench our thirst. And come as the holy dove, that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, may abide in our hearts this day. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Do not, do not, uh, do not, says the Apostle Paul, quench the Holy Spirit. He said that today in our epistle reading. Elsewhere in one of his letters, the letter to the Ephesians, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I suppose uh, we can say the difference between quenching the Holy Spirit, which means to pour water on what the Holy Spirit is doing, is focused more on how we respond to what the Spirit is doing in our midst, in our lives as individuals, and especially in the body of Christ as the church gathers for her worship and living out her life in Christ. To grieve the Holy Spirit tends to be, if we look at it in the context of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, tends to be how we relate to other people those attitudes of mind that we allow to take root in us, whether they be attitudes of unforgiveness, attitudes of bitterness, attitudes of anger that dominate our lives. Do not quench the Spirit of God's activity in your life and in the life of the church. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by the way you behave towards others and with the things you entertain within your mind. I say that especially today because we are gathered here for a confirmation service. And one of the things I like about this new confirmation service that we have in the Anglican Church in North America's Book of Common Prayer is it returns the sense of priority of the Holy Spirit in this sacrament of confirmation. We could call it the sacrament or the sacrament of of, uh, the Holy Spirit of Pentecost and we specifically invoke the Spirit of God to come upon those with whom he's already willing to indwell and already abiding with and so as you come forward to be confirmed we seek especially the anointing of the Spirit upon you for the ministry to which you're you're called But sometimes it happens before we know it. We notice some general unease within our lives. Something only partially identified. Until we finally come to the conclusion that we are living in the house of fear. Pacing back and forth in the room of worry. 
rocking on the chair of anxiety, lying sleepless in a bed of apprehension, cowering in a closet of doubt. Who knows how we got there? I suppose if we worked at it, we dug into the past, walked and retraced our steps of our lives, we could maybe arrive at where it began, but sometimes we never get to the root of what we're doing in this house of fear. When I was a parish priest, I remember a morning that a young woman came in for an appointment to talk about things. She was talking with her mouth and with her hands. And as I zeroed in on her hands, I noticed her fingernails were chewed down to the flesh. One or two places where she had even gone into the flesh itself. She was rocking back and forth in the chair of anxiety. Later that afternoon, a good friend from the past dropped by the office. He lived out of town and said he was passing through. Wondered if we could go out for a talk. So I got in his car and we drove around and then he parked at a park. And then he dropped what it was he wanted to talk about. He'd been suffering from free-floating anxiety on the verge of depression. certain amount of time, I suppose, we, we can spend fruitfully analyzing where we got there and how we got there, but when we get into this house of fear, into this chair of worry, on this bed of apprehension, the real challenge is to get out of it. We're not in this alone as believers, as Christians. We know that God is for us. He has sent his son Jesus Christ not to oppress us but to deliver us. He has sent Jesus Christ to us not in order to discourage us but in order to bring good cheer into our lives. Be of good cheer, said he said, for I've overcome the world. So as we draw near to him and as we lean in to rely upon this gift of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus promised would be with us and in us and that we would receive power when he comes upon us this gift of the Spirit of God we dare not grieve we dare not quench but cooperate with what he wants to do and so as we turn to this letter of St. Paul to the Thessalonians a, a letter that begins with him recounting how they received the word of God and the gift of God with joy even in the midst of affliction we ought not to be surprised that he ends it in a very similar place to where he began and so he says rejoice always pray constantly give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you and then he says, and don't quench the Spirit of God. Don't pour water on the fire that is in you. We want to link it even more with confirmation. We could say those words of Jesus 
of, of St. Paul when he says, I remind you to defend a flame the gift that is in you by the laying on of my hands because God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So, he says, uh, rejoice always, that is, be joyful. Pray constantly, that is, be prayerful. And then he says, uh, give thanks in all circumstances, that is, be thankful. Not as some kind of club to beat us up, but to have some kind of wonderful guidance about how to live. You know, it's only now that, that psychiatry and medical science is catching up with the things that the church knew in the first century. We're discovering that there are neurons in the brain that thought passes along those neurons and those synapses in such a way that the more the pathway is used, the more dominant becomes in our lives. So, to, to put it in a negative way, if you have a tendency towards being grumpy and grouchy and always focusing on the negative, that can become a pathway, a neurological pathway in the mind that is no longer like a dirt road that's traveled occasionally, it becomes an interstate. Because the more it's used, the, more, the wider the pathway becomes. Likewise, when we discover that we're going along these pathways of negativity, that which quenches the spirit, as Paul says, put aside all bitterness and wrath and anger and unforgiveness, then we can begin to form new pathways. What might be just a little dirt road of joy, if traveled long enough, can soon become a two-lane highway. And then pretty soon, an interstate. A bunch of the traffic of the world is kept out of, and your car runs free. So rejoice in the Lord, he says, always. Sometimes we forget the, the gospel of Jesus Christ begins with joy and ends with joy. We know it begins with joy because the angels, when announcing the birth of the Savior, says, do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of a what? A great joy that shall come to all the people, especially you and me today. So as we rejoice, it becomes a means by which joy is affirmed as something that we embrace and take as ours. Rejoicing shapes joy in the believer. That's why Paul often says in his letters, reminding us, rejoice of the Lord always. I'll say it again, he says, rejoice. No longer let the circumstances dominate your life. I think of this story that Bishop Festo Kavindri tells. One day when he, as he was the Bishop of Uganda, he was coming from the cathedral after what he thought was a fine sermon. And you can tell when a preacher thinks he's had a fine sermon because there's a new, a certain kind of lilt in his step. 
just a, 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 a certain confidence that comes not so much from himself, but he's finished the job. He's done it well. So he was walking in that way over to his house when a lady in her late 70s, a real saint, took him by the hand and said, Bishop, uh, what's wrong? You sounded a little dry today. <laughs> Whatever lilt was in his step, it vanished quickly. Before he could say anything, she patted him on the hand and said, That's okay, Bishop. Take it to the Lord in prayer. <laughs> so he said, I got down on my face as I, when I got home, and I received another blessing and was filled with the joy of the Lord. Rejoice always. We sang it this morning, didn't we? With that great hymn, Oh, oh come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Dispel the gloomy doubts of darkness and instill in us the victory of the Savior. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. After saying, be joyful, rejoice always, he says, pray constantly. That word translated constantly, or, or as this text says, pray without ceasing, is a word in secular Greek language that's used to describe a hacking cough. That even when you're not coughing, you have the impression or the sensation that you're going to. So the Apostle Paul isn't suggesting we're always in a state of prayer, actually uttering words. But the movement of the Spirit is always urging us to bring things before God. So when someone's unfolding their story to you, you are hearing with the third ear of the Spirit of how you might pray for them. When you are sharing your own story, you suddenly, by the, the Spirit of God, find yourself lifting it before you. The Spirit intercedes, uh, as Paul says, with sighs, with intercession, sometimes too deep for words. And so this prayer, that, this posture of prayer with which we, we go about our daily lives becomes something that gives us space between our own feelings and, uh, and the things going on around us. We get some perspective. Every year when I put up the Christmas tree, which I've yet to do, I've been dreading it this year. I don't know why. I've got to get in touch with that. don't want to put it up. But I'm going to. <laughs> and once I string the, the lights around the tree, I'll stand off at about 20 yards and look and see if there's symmetry there. I can't see it when I'm up close. I've got to get some space between me and the lights. But that's what prayer does for us in the lives we live as people. And as we go along that pathway, those neurons of bringing things before the Lord, well, we're like Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel. You know, he devised a headgear so that he blocked out his shadow from what he was painting. Our shadows can lean over our lives. And that attitude of constantly in a, a state of prayerfulness 
can give us that perspective that we need, that we can guard our hearts and our minds and get ourselves, by the grace of God, with a divine human cooperation to the place of peace. You say the last thing Paul wants us to think about is somehow or another we've got to get ourselves, pluck ourselves up into a life of joy, into a life of prayer, into a a life of of thanksgiving. But it's more that he expects that we will allow the Holy Spirit to have his sway over us. That we might uh, give thanks in all circumstances. The message isn't to give thanks for everything that happens. It is rather in the midst of any situation or circumstance to allow ourselves to get way to the place of gratitude and thanksgiving. You know, there are times, are there not, when we, we know we ought to be grateful, but it's not there. We search our hearts in vain for any hint of gratitude. We, we know only too well that we cannot command gratitude to seize our hearts. But we can, can we not, keep the door unlocked, the window unlatched, the shutters open. After all, even in the bleakest circumstances, gratitude has been known to overtake us and add a lilt and a lightness to the heaviest of days. On some days we stare for a long time at our lives and and see in every direction all around a barren and fruitless yield. And yet Habakkuk years ago pinned the words, though the fig tree should not blossom and no fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and no fields yield, no, the, uh, no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the Lord God as my salvation. So we know at times we ought to be grateful and it's not there. But as C.S. Lewis put it, the line between pretending to feel something and beginning to feel it is so, is so thin, it's too thin for a bloodhound to sniff. So as we begin this practice of being thankful, let me tell you one way that I've done it through the years. I have, and I don't know if you have in your house, a place that you go to for your morning prayers. Through years and days and months of being there, you associate that place with a place of prayerfulness. And when I realize that I've I've lost that spirit of, of, of gratitude, of thankfulness, I'll pause and look around at the things in the room. Remember the first time I did this. I looked over at uh, uh, an hidden table, and there was a, uh, a swan that my father-in-law, my wife's father, had given to Alice. And I saw that Lennox swan, and I thought to myself, Hal gave that to her. And then this is the way my thought process went. I thought, gosh, Allison's mother died when she was 13. She was an only child. All there was was her father and her. 
I remember once asking Allison, when, shortly after we had started dating and getting serious, I said, what kept you from being rebellious, going off in a pathway away from God? She said, I did not want to disappoint my father. When has one adequately thanked God for the father that nurtured your spouse in the way of God? I could pause over that for five minutes thinking about it, being grateful about that. I went from there to, to a lamp that I knew we got when I was in seminary at Trinity School for the ministry. How in the world did God make it so that a boy from California ended up at Trinity School for ministry in, in the second graduating class? It was God opening a door. I cannot give thanks enough for what I received there and the training I got there. Uh, there, there's a pause of five minutes of gratitude. And from there on to a, 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 a clock that my mother gave us. And then I think, oh, isn't it wonderful, those words of St. Paul, to remind Timothy to reflect on the grace that dealt, uh, dwelt first in your grandmother Eunice and then your mother Lois, and now I'm sure dwells in you. By the time I did the 30 minutes of gratitude, of giving thanks, I went out to the day with a new lilt in my step. I had started the day of an ingrate and ended the time of prayer as a thankful servant of the Lord. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances. One of the surest ways to get out of the gloom is the prayer of gratitude. Don't quench the Spirit of God. Don't grieve it. Fan a flame the gift that is in you. It will bring you a, 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 a joyful spirit, a prayerful spirit, and a thankful spirit. Because the Holy Spirit has been fanned a flame in your heart, in your mind. And the pathways of the brain are being shaped. As Paul says, whatever is gracious, whatever is lovely, what is excellent, if, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. And the peace of God will fill your soul. No longer a child of fear. No longer a slave of fear. You are a child. Amen. Oh.